What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers Podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How did they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions, both at their companies and in their personal lives, and what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own profitable internet businesses. Today, I am talking to Zach Resnick. Zach, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. You are the founder and CEO of Easy Point Concierge. I have a ton of friends who are involved in travel hacking, and you run a travel hacking business. So I figured before we get started talking about your business and how it all works, why don't you give us uh, an overview from Zach Resnick's perspective on what exactly travel hacking is? Yeah, I look at travel hacking as any ways to you know improve the experience when traveling or in any ways to save money. So often in, in my world, they overlap, but not necessarily. Cool. So any way to save money, any way to improve the experience. I'm terrible at this. I basically am just like the dope who gets on a plane and flies somewhere and pays full ticket price. I don't collect points. I don't sign up for frequent flyer programs. What sort of area of travel hacking do you specialize in with Easy Point? Uh, miles and points. And I've kind of specialized in that my entire travel hacking uh, career and personal life. Cool. So we're going to get into the story of how you started your business. And I think it's a pretty interesting story because the story of EasyPoint is basically that it's a side project. It's something that you've always done on the side. Um, It wasn't something that you ever intended to become a fully-fledged business with employees at the beginning. And yet today you've got a fully-fledged business. How many people work at EasyPoint today? Uh, We have about 10 people, of which uh, five are full-time right now. And how much revenue are you doing with EasyPoint? Uh, we've done over 600K year to date with a 15% month over month growth, all organic right now. Cool. So we're going to go through the winding path of how you got to this point, because as I said, it was a side project and you're always doing different things. What do you think the beginning of your story is? What did you first get into travel hacking and start to acquire the knowledge that you would need to build something like EasyPoint? Yeah, my, my story has a pretty clear beginning. Uh, I, I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to work and live abroad in Jerusalem before starting school. And after I came back, I was infected with a disease that I imagine many people listening to are as well. It's called wanderlust. And I really wanted to keep traveling. But when I started school, I didn't really have any money, didn't really have you know a job, wasn't necessarily looking <laughs> to get a job. So Wanted to see if there are ways to basically for free travel around the world. And turns out, especially for those that uh, live in the U.S., uh, there are. Uh, so I discovered the world of credit card churning and manufactured spending. Uh, so credit card churning is this concept of churning the banks for new credit card sign-up bonuses uh, like you would a cow's udder. And then manufactured spending is the process of spending money on a credit card, getting all, sometimes more, sometimes a little bit less of that money you spent somehow back to you, and then using that money to pay off the the card itself. So you earn the points and spend enough to get a sign-up bonus. So I'm sure you're asking, how, how do I do this? So the the method that I used back when I was at school in Ohio uh, was the the music building where I spent a lot of my time was very close to the post office and the CVS. Uh, so I would go on a little, you know, break, put some music on, go to CVS and buy the daily limit, a thousand dollars worth of Visa gift cards, which unlike all the other kind of cash equivalent gift cards used to code as debit cards all the time. And you can add a pin and came with a pin. I'd 
meander on over from the CVS to the post office, buy money orders with those debit cards because you can uh, buy money orders with a debit card but not a credit card at the post office. And then I would take a screenshot of the money order into my mobile banking app, pay off the credit card bill that initially bought the gift card, my cost of kind of you know spending $1,000 with r- roughly $5, so like 0.5%. But I was, you know, then... For each a thousand dollar block I spent, I was hitting a sign up bonus of maybe like two, three, or four grand that was worth at least eight hundred dollars. So take a little bit of time, take a little bit of money, uh, but after each new credit card, I'd have like at least one round trip, uh, at least economy ticket to Europe. Wow! And that kind of got me hooked. Okay, so I have a ton of questions about this. First off, where do you even learn how to do something like this? Because if I was a poor college student, I would just give up on on traveling. Well, the, the internet's a wonderful place, and especially within the churning and manufactured spending community, while there's certainly a lot of you know secret, not shared on public forum information, there's so much information on public forums. There's all these great websites that make it easily accessible. If you want to do this and you're listening to this, you have no excuse not to. You just Google churning community and that exists somewhere on Reddit or... Yeah, there's a huge Reddit community. Uh, there's a great community on Flyer Talk for more advanced stuff. And then there's many individual bloggers that also have their own communities and their own kind of libraries of posts. Okay, second question. How are credit card companies okay with this? If they're basically giving away these sign-up bonuses and you're paying off your cards, aren't they just losing money? Well, it's really hard to be an unprofitable customer uh, to a bank as a credit card user. Even someone like me, who, I mean, not so much now, but I, like, in my heyday at school for a few years, I would get between four and six credit cards per quarter and basically just spend the minimum spend to get the sign up bonus and then i would like never use the card again or like cancel it so it's difficult to imagine that that card alone would be profitable for the banks but just the chance that i could then use their another card in the future like on right. average like you know banks are willing to give out these really generous sign up bonuses because on average you know a new customer to them is worth at least thousands of dollars so even giving away like one of the most generous sign up bonuses ever which i'd say conservatively valued at $1500 Chase Sapphire Reserve a couple of years ago 100,000 sign up bonus they're going to make that money back real quick without that much spending. You know, they make money, uh, a little bit of money off people going to debt and paying that back. But contrary to what people, most people think, that's actually not how they make most of their money. They make most of their money by kind of opening up to other lines of business. Chase has been especially successful at that in terms of getting, you know, high spending millennials from the Chase Sapphire Reserve into using them for mortgages and for wealth management and all their types of services, as well as just the, the interchange fees. So every time you, you know, let's say you spend a hundred thousand dollars at an art gallery, you know, Chase is going to take at least a grand of that. So if there's just some percent of chance that you'll use that card over the next 10 years for that, you know, all the LTV data is is siloed, but uh, it doesn't take much to make it really profitable for them to spend a lot on customer acquisition. And this is one way to do it. And even if they have like a few unprofitable customers here and there, the offer by and large still really works for them. And then even if I'm getting a thousand dollars in value from it, it's not a thousand on their balance sheet. You know, these are things that they, uh, points that then transfer to other like airline miles or other hotel points. So the net effect for them is is pretty minimal, even for unprofitable customers, probably maximally just like a few hundred dollars per card. So what you're saying is the credit card business is a good business to be in. Yeah, it's a great business to be in. Last question on all this churning, how does this affect your credit as an individual? Because part of your credit report is you get a little bit of a ding when you open up a new line of credit, you get a new credit card. Is opening up four to six credit accounts 
per quarter, not a thing that hurts your credit. It is not. And that's one of the biggest misconceptions about kind of credit card churning and in the miles and points world that getting lots of cards is bad for your credit. Uh, if you don't pay your bills, uh, it's bad for your credit if you do that on more cards than less. But fundamentally, the the thing that affects your credit score more than anything else is your credit utilization. This is the percentage of credit that you have across all of your banks that you're utilizing at one time. So the more cards you have, the greater credit you have. And as a result of having greater credit, as long as your spending doesn't increase proportionally to the credit you get, your utilization goes down, which is the most important thing. So you're actually making your credit better by doing this. Exactly. And and then you're you're increasing your number of accounts, which is positive for your credit. So these are more long-term things. And as, as you said, each credit card you get, anytime you cancel it, it's a small ding. But the the more important stuff is is your age, the amount of accounts you have, and most importantly, your utilization, all three of which are helped by this. Cool. So here you are, a member of the churning community and getting all these flights for significant amounts off. How old were you when you were doing all this? 19 uh, to start. One of the most off-repeated refrains in the startup community is that you should start by solving your own problem because you know more about your problems than anybody else. It sort of prevents you from falling into this trap where you build something that nobody wants. At this point in time, when you're saving money on flights, had it occurred to you that maybe this is a service that other people would want? Yeah, uh, I mean, for for years while I was doing this, you know, I had was giving lots of uh, sometimes solicited, sometimes unsolicited advice to friends and family on what to do with their credit cards or lack thereof, how to use the miles and points that they had. It's hard not to talk about it. When yeah, you have something good, exactly. And you know, people would say it's like, oh wow, like you you went on this trip. How would you do that? Well, let me tell you, I spent forty dollars to go to London this break. You know, <laughs> forty dollars and whatever hour and a half of my time. Uh, over the course of going to CVS and the post office. And then, yeah, I'd say probably within the year, I had my first paying customers just as an hourly rate. And I didn't even think of it as a business. It was just kind of more of like, whatever, a hustle, a a consulting thing. Uh, I didn't even probably use the word consulting until like two years after discovering churning. But, you know, people just enjoyed kind of the help that I gave. I really like teaching and helping others and, you know, that kind of spread. And, you know, within probably like two years when I was like 21, I was probably doing at least like a grand a month in terms of just people paying me for my time. And first I I charged way too little. And then soon I, you know, read enough Tim Ferriss and hourly rate stuff that I uh, bumped it up to a hundred and then 150 uh, and then kind of settled around there for a while while I was in college. So give me an idea of what it would be like to be one of your consulting clients at that time. I would come up to you and say, Zach, I don't know anything about flights. Uh, Can you help me out? No, it probably wouldn't be that because then it wouldn't really make sense. It would be more like, hey, I have a trip coming up. I have all these points. How do I use them? Okay, so it's people who already had points and people who already knew they had specific travel plans. Yeah, it was generally helping just optimize for like a vacation or for a business trip. And generally speaking, the pitch was like, You'll learn something, you'll enjoy the conversation, and even after my fee, you know, you'll you'll come out ahead. So at some point you're making thousands of dollars a month from consulting and you ended up starting another business because you didn't view Easy Point Consulting at that point in time as an actual business. Tell me about how you got into your more tech product business at that time. Yeah, so so land was an idea that I had because I, you know, love traveling internationally. I've spent a lot of time in the Middle East after my kind of year in Israel. I lived again in Israel and in Jordan. And, you know, I, I always felt the pain of international travel, especially to new places. Like, wouldn't it be great if there was one place I can go that can give me all the essential information that I ever wanted to have? You know, kind of like cultural norms, transportation. Uh, and I, I had, you know, eight eight of these things that like I wanted to standardize information-wise and like a, a fun, compelling 
you know, app product and I really wanted it. it was solving my own problem. I still think it's a great product idea. I do have, you know, the MVP on the app store. If you look for land happier, you could find it. But fundamentally, I made the, I think the mistake that a lot of people make, which is, isn't necessarily solving a problem that no one has, but it's solving a problem which no one's willing to pay for. Right. Uh, and then also finding like founder product fit in which, you know, I'm not going to be really happy leading like, leading a tech project and essentially being like a product manager. Like I, I'm very passionate about the products that I use and have a lot of opinions, but it doesn't, it, I'm not excited. And I don't think the way that product managers do. And it took me kind of, you know, a little over a year of, of some pain to, to realize that. But yeah, I, I tried to solve my own problem. I tried to build a great product for other people. And then this was like near at the end of when I was in college. And then I was working on this while doing a bunch of other things, right? you know, post-college and then, I decided, you know, listen, I've spent too much time and energy and my own money on trying to make this work and, you know, see no end in sight of, you know, burn and when I'm going to get customers. So decided to pack my things and move to Jordan, focus on other stuff. Founding, finding a product founder fit is one of the most underrated things, I think, and starting a company because if you don't like what you're working on, you're probably not going to be good at it. You're definitely not going to be happy. Why do you think it took so long for you to figure out that this wasn't the type of business that was right for you? And what do you think is the kind of business that matches up with your personality? So I think it took me a while because when I put my mind to doing something, I, I do it. You're committed. Yeah. Uh, so it it would take something structural like it doesn't make sense for me to do this to even consider having that reflection, which is something I think you know a lot of founders would do good to have more as part of their kind of regular reflection of like, Am I happy doing this? Should I be doing this? So the, I think the types of things that make me most happy are things where I'm, you know, working with people and having, you know, interesting, stimulating conversation on a, on a regular basis in person. I think running businesses where I'm doing some type of sales. I enjoy sales. I enjoy explaining things to others and I enjoy negotiating and I enjoy doing like strategic thinking. So I do think in many ways, like the role of like an executive or investor is very well suited to kind of what I like. It's just about, I think doing something that's less, uh, you know, like product focused and, you know, more, more customer focused, but there is an intersection of those. And I do have ambitions for easy point to, have more tech products in the future going back. Uh, yeah. But just knowing that I'm not going to be the one that, you know, oversees those, those products, uh, in terms of all the little, little stuff. <laughs> so tell me about the decision to shut down, uh, was it called land happier? Uh, yeah, it was called land. Uh, and then like the name on the app store is land, land happier. That was like the URL we got. It's a good, it's a good URL. I want to land happier. Tell me about the, the, the decision to shut something like that down because I think a lot of people work on things and they're not going well or they're not enjoying it but like you said they're committed and it's really hard to know when should I shut this down and move on to something else and you know am I going to be okay psychologically if I do that or am I going to be depressed and you know not be able to start another company what was that experience like for you well if you're thinking about shutting something down and you've had that nagging feeling you probably should just as a general rule and I promise you'll feel a lot better or at least I did <laughs> I wasn't a Definitely didn't feel worse. Felt like a huge weight off my shoulders. So I I actually made the decision pretty quickly while I was here in the Bay Area visiting uh, my cousin and mentor Dan Rosen, uh, who's been a successful entrepreneur that also moved from the East Coast to the Bay Area, and we were just having a conversation about you know what I'm working on, and I think he's always been really good about pushing me to kind of think and dream bigger and to you know do more of something that I think has more material impact on the world, and was just like 
what basically like, what are you doing, Zach? Come on. <laughs> uh, and then it also coincided with having this incredible opportunity to work with this amazing composer, uh, in Jordan that I, that I've always enjoyed working with and listening to as well as, uh, playing with the Jordanian national orchestra. So, you know, having those two opportunities, kind of having a yearning for more freedom for more music and, you know, being at the time of my life, I think I moved there when I was 24. Just, it all just seemed to make very clear sense when we talked about it on, on some hike in Marin. And, uh, basically the next day I told everyone I was starting it down and I bought my plane ticket to Jordan a few days later. So at this point, you've still been running your sort of consulting business, helping people save money on flights on the side. Has it evolved at all in the course of you running this product business or is it kind of stagnant while you're running the product business? Um, yeah, I'd say like near, near the end of, of working on land, uh, I started to productize my consulting and really get a better sense of my customers and like who I can help out more. As I was generally helping, I'd say like, you know, family, friends, people that were like my parents' age, just like plan vacations. But, you know, people that want to plan vacations that aren't frequent travelers, like, you know, they ask a lot of follow-up questions. They're not the kind of amount of effort I put in reward that they get is good, but it's not as good as helping out a small business owner or even a medium-sized, you know, enterprise business owner where I could help them, you know, get the right credit cards, put their spending on the right cards, and now, you know, save them literally six figures in terms of increased return on spend or six figures worth of increased like travel uh, value to them just by doing this. So then I started focusing more on, you know, really just people I knew and referrals. It was never kind of did any marketing for like points optimization plans for small business owners where we focused on both the acquisition of points Mm -hmm. uh, as well as the spending as both are kind of big areas of arbitrage and ways to get more value. One of the, I think, most important things, especially for an early stage business owner is to be able to tell certain customers, hey, this isn't for you. Because if you try to build a business that works for everybody, you're going to go crazy. You're going to have a product that doesn't really have product market fit. It doesn't work well for everybody. And you're going to feel pretty bad all the time delivering kind of a mediocre product to everybody. How was it for you uh, deciding to sort of focus on a different kind of customer than you focused on traditionally? Well, it was great. I, you know, I, I loved being able to think more like a business owner than just maybe like a leisure traveler and kind of put myself in their shoes. And it helped me learn a lot more about, I think, just like good business owning fundamentals and, you know, looking at a balance sheet, looking at travel expenses. And yeah, I, I, I really liked it. How much would you say at that time you were like a student of business? Were you reading business books and, and following like business luminaries or were you just sort of winging it? Yeah, I think I've been like a, a, as you put it, a student of business for for a while. Uh, since I was young, my uh, my dad uh, was a business owner, and I always learned a lot from him. So I always was lucky to have a really good example to look up to and to kind of ask questions about business. And I kind of helped out in the office from like I think a very young age. So and then in high school, I started doing more like reading. And then when I read the four hour work week while I was living abroad uh, before school, that kind of really just changed my life in the way that I thought about, you know, like work and lifestyle and uh, creating value and capturing it. And, you know, since, since then I've been a pretty voracious reader of the way people think about business. Are there any like principles and learnings from the four hour work week that you still subscribe to today and that were sort of infused in this whole process of how you were living your life? Yeah, I'd say uh, some, you know, it's not an original idea of Tim's, but I think he's, you know, really popularized it well, which is this idea of like fear setting. So instead of goal setting, doing thinking like okay if i want to do this thing that i'm like afraid of what's like the worst thing that could possibly happen and just realizing you know especially for those of us that are lucky enough to you know 
uh, grow up in the United States at this period of time, you know, uh, not growing up uh, with financial insecurity, with food insecurity. Like there, there's really so much that we can do in this world. And if we try something and we fail, the worst that can happen is really not that bad. And just getting over that initially is something that I think most people in life, even those that come from, you know, having so much security don't end up doing once in their lives. So I think Tim really just helped me apply a lot of like the risk management principles that I think I was intuitively good at for things like poker uh, into like my, my life and my, my business, broadly speaking. Yeah, that's uh it's interesting you mentioned that because I have a lot of software engineers on the podcast. And like one of the most consistent themes when I ask people what made you confident enough to start a business is this fact that at least as a software engineer, it's pretty easy to fall back on your software engineering skills and just get a job, probably a very high paying job, if your startup doesn't work out. For you, what was the worst case scenario if none of this worked out? I guess, you know, for me the worst case scenario was I would, you know continue to play music, continue to consult miles and points stuff, you know, maybe play a little, little poker cash games. You know, I, I've always been someone that uh, it's hard for me to do just like one thing at once. And I've always tried to monetize my, my passions to some degree. Uh, so I, I was never really worried about like what would, especially after that, like reading the four hour work week and having the experience of living abroad, like what would happen in terms of the worst case scenario? Like financially, I was more worried about you know, just making sure that I was happy doing what I was doing. So let's talk about poker for a second, because it's, it's come up so naturally in our conversation. <laughs> You're one of the few people who I've had on the podcast who also play poker with in real life. Um, I've, been, I've been to like, what, like five or six of your poker games Yeah, in San Francisco. Haven't been to any of yours yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, mine are, mine are low stakes, man. You don't want to come to my games, uh, but yours are riveting. Why do you play poker, Zach? I really, really love poker. It's a beautiful game. And I think one that teaches you, you know, really important principles like risk management, you know, practical kind of like statistics and math, you know, the, this is the one that people just focus on and I think overblow, but it's still true of psychology and getting to like understand others. So good kind of like negotiating skills come from that. And I think most importantly, above all, which is like emotional dis- discipline and temperament. Because, you know, the, the game that we play in, and I think this is true for basically every game, it's, it's really not that much about like how skilled you are and like how much you've studied the game theory and how much you know. It's like, how will you execute that night and allow yourself to like be your best thinking self and not let kind of the emotions of winning against this one person yeah. or, you know, trying to lock in a win or trying to make up for the fact that you're down. I think that's kind of the, the most important thing that sets apart the people that walk away with a ton of money and those that lose consistently. And I think that skill of being able to, you know, make quality, like logically driven decisions under like financial pressure is, you know, an amazing thing from poker. And it's something that's, I think, given me the confidence as a business owner and investor. You have far more sophisticated reasons for playing poker than I do. <laughs> I just find <laughs> it's really it a good fun. excuse really to fun. be, yeah. yeah, it's really fun. And I find <laughs> it a good excuse to be uh, social while also sort of exercising my brain because I'll get so bored if I just go to a bar and talk to people. But if I'm like playing cards at the same time, it's super fun for me. But all the points you made are, I think, really good, especially the idea of being under the pressure, especially financial pressure, and yet having to make rational decisions in a situation where you're probably going to get tilted if you lose or feel overconfident if you win. How do you think that translates into being a startup founder, which is also super risky, where you also have you know the potential for a financial disaster or at least you know the opportunity cost that you could have made way more money if you weren't starting a company? Uh, do you think there's any parallels there? I think there's a lot of parallels. First off, 
being almost any type of startup founder is like so much riskier than let's say being a professional poker player or gambler, you know, being a startup founder, it's, you know, uh, especially if you're trying to do the VC funded, like not that most indie hackers are this way, but you know, if you're trying to do the VC funded, like, you know, growth or go broke, like you just statistically, you're just going to like lose a lot of money and time and opportunity costs the vast, vast majority of the time. Hopefully you'll learn so much and have enough network that it's not just looking at the isolation, it's long term. But yeah, compared to like when you break break it down from just like a how much money can I earn standpoint, it's like a very risky thing to do. But I this is where I think, you know, the it's not just about maximizing the amount of money that you can make. It's about thinking of like other types of risks of like, what are the risks of my happiness if I do a job that I don't enjoy? What are the risks of like, if I want to build this business, knowing that I didn't do that and having regret? Like there's a lot of other types of risks. And I think what startup founders, I think many are just kind of impulsive and frankly, don't think about this, especially first time startup founders. I know I was definitely in that category when I try to build land, but uh, I think especially like serial founders, you know, the they're evaluating risk on many different types of axes, not just money. And, you know, I, I think by being so around risk and having to make, you know, both complex and financial and emotional decisions on a regular basis, you have a much greater comfort as well as I think understanding of risk than those that don't have to make those decisions frequently. And yeah, so I honestly very similar to, to poker, but just like a lot riskier and the problems are a lot more complex and there's the concept of unknown unknowns where in poker, like as long as no one's cheating, like there's only 52 cards, you, you know, you're going to know the odds. They can't, you know, there can't be some like macroeconomic thing that then just like pushes the chips off the table. Like poker is in, in that respect and is like a lot less risky than like going into business or, you know, going in financial markets. What do you think are some of the things that you learned from your previous sort of business failure with land and from your years of consulting that, sort of helped you on later. Because uh, if I look at my startup journey in my 20s, a lot of it was very risky. There was a lot of opportunity costs that I gave up. I could have just gone and gotten a job at Google or something. Instead, I was making pennies as a startup founder. And none of the businesses that I worked on really worked out in an economic way. But I also became a significantly better developer. I learned a lot about business and marketing. I learned a lot about talking to people and sales. I learned a lot about a ton of stuff that basically helped me build a successful business later on. Do you think your early experiences, despite the risks that you took and some of the setbacks, were worthwhile? Definitely, and I, I think the main reason they were worthwhile are are not financial. You know, they're just the, the experiences that I was able to have as a result. So, like knowing or learning some lessons firsthand, and you know, everyone when they're like given advice or talking about their experiences, they always said, "Oh, I wish someone told me this." But the reality is, the best lessons you learn in life, you kind of have to learn the hard way. Uh, so with land, I learned the importance of like building a great team and having a good culture and having good communication with the people you're working with. I think I would have honestly kept building land uh, for even longer if it wasn't for a pretty negative experience with like my lead developer. And that made it just much more of a drag than if it was someone that I you know felt really good about working with. Uh, so learning that and just having a lot more care and kind of who, who I hired and who I brought into future ventures. And I think that's, that's worked out well now with the way easy point is and kind of culture we have there. But other lessons are, I think also just really looking at, you know, the thing we discussed before founder product fit, just like, am I happy doing this? Like, is this something that I could see myself doing? And, you know, the way easy point kind of transitioned from the productized consulting to the concierge service it is today 
it kind of started a little bit as the side hustle I'm just doing myself and I'm already doing it for like, I'm already doing it for my own travels, you know? So all of this like consulting I'm doing, like I love doing it for myself. So having the opportunity to serve customers is just more ability to get to think about miles and points in a fun way. And the discovering kind of the, the opportunities for doing miles and points arbitrage allowed me to, you know, just do more of the stuff that I, that I do myself anyways. So tell me about this transition to, productized consulting? Because I think uh, one of the cool things about starting a startup is it doesn't have to end up the same way that it started. You can start by doing something like normal consulting. You can take that into productized consulting. You can eventually scale and grow and turn your business into something that's much better than what it started as by sort of building on the earlier advantages and learnings that you have. And I think that's not obvious to a lot of first-time founders. They think, oh, whatever I start today, that has to be what it's going to be like two years from now. And so they have you know, sort of grand ambitions and it's really hard to start at the end. You need to start at the beginning. So I'm curious about this sort of midway point when you turned uh, easy point from just a consulting business to a productized consulting business, what did that actually look like? So this came from, I was, you know, helping like a family friend with a vacation and they're a business owner. And, uh, just the conversation came up for the business of like just some quick suggestions of how I could help. And then we kind of ran the math and it's like, Oh, like if you implement this, this is like easily like 50 K that you're going to get in recruit search increased return on spend and wouldn't cost you or take you that much time to implement. And after that, I kind of, the light bulb went off. It's like, oh, if I can like do a, just a really quick analysis and provide one thing that then does that. Imagine if I, you know, then get to understand their business a little bit more, get a, you know, put a few more hours of my time into it and give them, you know, a customized points optimization plan. So they're able to, you know, earn as many points as possible and then spend them uh, in a way that makes them go longer than they would kind of with their own you know, knowledge of, of miles and points. Cool. And so you're basically taking something that worked for, for one client and sort of expanding it and scaling it to something that could work for lots of different clients? Yeah. I mean, really, every small business owner is leaving a lot of money on the table. Like, what, what's your points optimization strategy for Indie Hackers? <laughs> well, Indie Hackers is owned by Stripe. So I got my Stripe credit card and okay. uh, I just have Stripe pay for my flights. <laughs> Okay. Well, I cheat know, a little bit. That, that's, that, that's not bad. But, uh, I mean, you know, Carlson Brothers listening to this. What's your credit card optimization strategy for Stripe? You know, it's different for very large enterprises, but, you know, what, this is the way I would usually start kind of most sales conversations or just, you know, learning conversations of, you know, what's your, what's your points optimization strategy? And everyone's like, Oh, I don't, I don't have one. Oh, what's, what's going on? And, you know, almost every business owner, if there was like an easy way to like, increase their bottom line by 1%. Like they're going to they're going to put a little time into it. But because it's like points and it's credit cards, they just don't do it. I've never worked with a business owner in which I haven't been able to increase their bottom line by 1.5%. Not a single one. On average it's closer to a, uh, you know, 2.5%. And this is simply just by getting them the right credit cards for the type of spending they're they're doing and then helping them use their points better for the things they already want to spend on. Very cool. So this is iteration 2 of you helping business owners. Would you say that you had found product market fit at this point? So I did not for the very clear reason of you have to solve someone's problem. So with land, I was like solving, I think, people's problems, but without a market opportunity. Here, I was, you know, providing a lot of value, but not solving a problem. No one knows that they don't have a points optimization strategy. No one is suffering from this. So it inevitably, I'd have a conversation. People would be very interested. They ask a lot of questions. I'd show them the math of how I'm going to save them at least five figures, you know, after our first meeting within a year. And I, you know, I have the, uh, we still have the guarantee where, you know, if, if you sign up, uh, for our, you know, productized points optimization plans and, I don't get you double 
what my fee is within the first year, we give you all your money back in $10,000. That's how confident I am in our ability to, to add value, you know? So I think, oh, with an offer like that, it's risk free. But for most entrepreneurs, they're, you know, they're too busy, not necessarily organized. They have a lot of things and solving something that isn't their problem always goes down to the bottom of the list. Uh, so the problem with product market fit there was just, yeah, it wasn't solving a problem. I was just giving people free money. And I know that sounds like, well, of course that should work, but it does not. And I had to learn that the hard way. So was it more the case that you're telling people, hey, I'm going to save you this much money. You're basically going to make, I don't know, 10, 15 grand if you're spending a million a year on your credit card or something like that. And they're like, oh, that sounds great. And then they don't get in touch. They don't actually sign up. Or was it more the case that the people you talked to uh, were intrigued and signed up, but nobody was a ser- nobody was searching for this, and so it was hard for you to get more customers. Yeah, it's somewhere in between. Whereas, like, it would just take the trust of like a referral or like an in person communication to close basically every deal I've done. So I, I've done like thirty of those over the last like two and a half years or so. I, to be fair, I never really tried to build like an outbound marketing campaign for this, and I'm I'm sure that like this business could get a lot more customers. And you know, for for any of you listening. Part of the offer that I'm extending to Indie Hacker listeners is $500 off any points optimization plans that are uh, signed up for within the first week of this podcast coming out and $250 off all uh, plans after that. So if you're a business owner and you don't mind spending a few hours that net you at least $800 an hour in value uh, for your time, then, you know, Shoot me an email at the in the show notes, and you know you'll check out our the link for kind of uh, examples of what it looks like. So I think it's still a a great business, but the the problem of just making people aware of the problem would take a lot of work, and it was was work that I you know wasn't particularly excited about doing, and didn't have the money or the vision to hire someone to do it yet. So. Uh, it never really got off the ground. I also had other things going on. You know, again, it's, I never with this business, I, I was never trying to like grow it really fast. It was just like a way to, to make money, uh, that I enjoyed, but it was, I was just more tending to my customers' needs as opposed to thinking, how can I drive this to be this big company? So it's so interesting that you've, with both businesses, as you mentioned, found a way to build something that like is somewhat valuable to people, but like they're not willing to pay for, they're not willing to divert a lot of attention to. In the case of sort of easy point version two, it's that, you know, as a business owner, perhaps I'm super focused on like, how do I make my company successful? Or how do I stop my company from dying? And even saving $10,000 a month might not be that number one thing that's going to help me do that. And if that's the case, even though it's free money, I'm not going to use easy point because why would I? It's not my number one concern. How did you decide to sort of take your learnings and build the current version of Easy Point, version three, let's call it? Yeah. So, so you know, to be clear, I and uh, my my CEO we're still doing these uh, these points optimization plans, and we're we're happy to help, and we love working with uh, you know entrepreneurs. So V two still around. V two still around. We're not advertising it, you know. Uh, besides, I guess this podcast. But yeah, what what we've been working on for almost two years now is the concierge service where. It's you know very simple uh, flights that people want. Uh, we take care of it for them with good service and charge less than any other possible way that they could pay for it. So, for example, I am flying to Cape Town in yes. December. Uh, let's say I wanted to be an Easy Point Concierge customer. How would that what would that journey look like? So, we're a flight concierge service that focuses on business and first class international long haul travel. So, flying okay. to Cape Town would definitely apply for that. And you don't want to be an economy for the flight, flights that are that long, at least if you want to enjoy the first few days of your trip. And we average about 40% off retail flights. So, there's a lot of variance with that. Sometimes it's just 10%, sometimes it's as high as 80%, especially for last minute. So, the, the way it would work is you contact us either via our mobile app 
or the way most of our customers interact with us is over WhatsApp and Telegram groups, where my team of concierge that are available 24 7, 365 days a year, uh, it's a group with all of us in there. And then anytime you want a flight request, you just kind of give us the information. You know, via the app, WhatsApp, Telegram, and then some over email. And then we get back to you with a quote uh, that will always be cheaper than the retail price by at least 5% guaranteed no matter what. And then when you're ready to book, we give you a secure form and take your you know personal and uh, payment information. We actually use Stripe for the credit card information and we never see the numbers um, as a result of switching to Stripe recently. Great product. And then, yeah, after that we just book the flight for you send your confirmation numbers and take care of any you know changes cancellations meal requests seat requests like any other concierge uh service but you know the two things that mainly set us apart are that we're available 24 7 and mainly interact kind of over text Mm -hmm. uh although we'll you know get on the phone if anyone wants to but usually people prefer kind of text and you know we have the best prices on luxury flights so how do you make money in all of this because you're basically saving me money on a flight where does your revenue come from so what we do uh, for our biggest savings are buying miles and points from businesses that otherwise wouldn't use them effectively. And then we use those miles and points to book our clients' flights. So where we make money is in the difference between what we pay for the miles and points and then what we charge the customer. So when we save our clients 40% off, that's with our you know margin included. Very cool. So you're basically doing this arbitrage type thing where you're finding these miles and points for cheap. And you're using them on your customers and then you're taking like, you know, sort of a cut from that. Yeah. How do you find miles and points for cheap? That seems to be like the difficult part of any arbitrage opportunity. How do you find, you know, what you're selling for less than you're able to sell it for? Yeah. So the the community that is actively doing uh, like miles and points, you know, like trading or arbitrage is is fairly small and, and fairly concentrated uh, within the like Hasidic Jewish community within the like New York tri-state area. And I didn't even know this existed actually until going to kind of like a Shabbat lunch uh, in college. And, you know, was telling uh, a visiting rabbi about kind of, you know, this trip to Israel that I just did all on points. And uh, he was like, oh, do you know any of the brokers? I was like, what do, you, what do you mean? What brokers are you talking about? And he's like, oh, like, yeah, the brokers that are brokering all the miles and points. I was like, what? <laughs> tell, brokers. yeah, tell me, tell me more. And then I, I'm from New York. So I went home and I, uh, you know, went, went to Brooklyn and, and met a couple of his friends and learned all about it. And kind of my, my eyes were like, oh, wow, there's a big opportunity here. So, so uh, most people that are kind of doing miles and points arbitrage, they, give kind of, I think, a bad name to that word in that the their approach, uh, broadly speaking, is buying any type of mile or point with not that much due diligence and then booking their clients' flights. And like 5 to 10% of the time, there'll be like some type of issue because often uh, what we're doing is uh, uh, against the terms of service of the airlines. But there are ways to do so that actually eliminate all risk for the customers. It involves paying a bit more for your miles and points on average and not using just any supply and doing a little more diligence. But that's what we do. And that's how we've been able to book, you know, a couple thousand flights without a single issue. Uh, so what we're generally doing is buying, uh, transferable point currencies like a Chase or an Amex and then transferring those directly from kind of the business owners or, you know, the business owners via brokers like Amex or Chase account mm-hmm. directly to frequent flyer accounts we make for our clients. How we do that is a bit of a, you know, secret sauce, but 
that's essentially how, how it works. And being able to do it and having access to the liquidity is not something that just any upstart person could do. So I feel good about kind of the moat we've created and the kind of other ways we're, you know, currently looking into uh, acquiring, uh, you know, miles and points. Yeah, I like how this works because, like you said, as a customer, number one, I'm communicating with you over like a WhatsApp group or a Telegram group. It's very um, informal, but very fast. I'm basically texting you, which is exactly what I want to be able to do if I'm booking something as important as a flight. And I want to make sure I save money. And if there's any issues, I want you to be able to sort of get in touch with me very quickly. So it makes sense that you're doing it that way. And also, I like the fact that you're, as you put it, creating frequent flyer accounts for your customers. That means I could be an easy point concierge customer without having having any miles or points of my own. I just kind of sign up. Yeah, yeah. We we don't, you know, there's no requirement uh, to use your own miles or points. We also do that as a service as well. But our customers are the type of people that, you know, they need to get somewhere. They're looking online for the price. And instead of going that and having to deal with all that search themselves, whether it's them or their executive assistants, now they just kind of text us. We give them a quote and we kind of take care of all the booking process, any, all the, you know, service related things and do it at a, at a, at a cheaper price without having to deal with any of the miles or points themselves. Earlier with, with V2, when you had your productized consulting, you kind of had a product market fit issue where you were basically saving people money, but it wasn't their number one concern to save money in that way as business owners. With EasyPoint Concierge, it seems like you're more focused on consumers again rather than businesses. Is that true? Yeah, I'd say like our business is very much like B2C to B in that uh, the vast, so our, our clients are very specific type people. We really shine for like the, the last minute business traveler in that last minute airlines actually open up a ton of award availability via their miles, but they jack up the prices for cash tickets. So our inventory and our cost to book someone a ticket goes down a lot in the last kind of, you know, 24 hours to 72 hours and then to a lesser degree in like the week before, but the prices for almost everyone else goes up. So the value we add to our customers on the price is probably like 2x difference in the last minute. And the service matters more because it's usually a little more stressful to book a ticket yeah, exactly. in the last 48 hours than kind of a leisure trip months in advance. So we're, you know, our, our clients are basically exclusively investors, like well-capitalized founders and executives and high-end international consultants, uh, people that don't consider flying economy for long-haul flights. And, you know, uh, to date, they've either worked with travel agencies that have been overcharging them or not performing on the service or just kind of booking flights online themselves. And then switching to us, you know, we're saving them literally like thousands of dollars on every flight that they're doing. And if you like the sound of thousands of dollars off your flight, let's add another $200 to that. So if you are listening to this and have an upcoming business or first class flight that you would like to book by using the code IndieHacker, if you book within the next week with us, you'll get $200 off your first flight. And you could use that code whenever to get $100 off, off your first flight. Very cool. So maybe a little too late for my flight to Cape Town, but uh, I'll keep you in mind for future flights. Oh, I didn't say. So yeah, so how's your flight to Cape Town work? Yeah, you get integrated to WhatsApp Telegram. You give the you uh, let us know. And have you booked, booked the flight yet? I already booked the flight. This is a couple weeks ago. Corlin. I know, I'm an idiot. What happened? I know. Well, next time, I'm, I, I fly all the time. We have so many Andy Hackers meetups all over the place, so I've got uh, a lot of excuses to fly. Okay, let's 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 uh, convene after the podcast and see if it's a refundable <laughs> fare, because you probably overpaid. I've definitely overpaid. It was an expensive <laughs> flight. I think I'm on one of the very first, uh, there's like a whole new direct flight from, uh, I think, JFK to Cape Town, uh-huh. yeah. and it's it's uh, brand new. So I think they're not starting until December, and I'm on like, like the eighth flight out or something. Oh, cool. So it's exciting, but yeah, not cheap. Yeah. So I have a ton of questions I want to ask about how your business works and about sort of how you came up with it. Um, first, 
the fact that you sort of discovered this arbitrage opportunity, how involved was that in basically a genesis of this idea? Was it like you wouldn't have started this in the first place, this concierge idea, if you hadn't found that? No, or? yeah, it wouldn't have been possible. I mean, but I, I just, so I kind of like my previous lines of business, like I discovered the idea, I met the brokers and I already had a lot of my own points. Mm-hmm. And then I, you know, knew a couple high net worth individuals that were traveling a lot. And I just started booking them flights just myself. Like didn't even think of it as like, this is now easy point, you know, uh, it was more because easy point, the brand and, you know, domain and everything that didn't come to be until I was doing the points optimization plans, like the productized consulting. Right. But I didn't even think of this as easy point. This was just like, I'm booking someone a flight and for me, it's fun because like I literally at night, like will relax by like looking up like the way to get a good deal via miles and points to like, you know, Bangkok or something, some place that I want to go. Uh, so now I'm just doing that for other people and getting paid for it. Like really, it, I'm very lucky to found something that I, you know, really love what I do. Cool. And you come up with the idea. It works. Uh, you decide you're going to be, as you said, B to C to B, really, because these are business class flights that consumers are taking. What was kind of the first step in building out a team to build this concierge business? Because this is a little bit different than what you've been doing earlier. Yeah. Uh, it's a little bit more official in, in a way, a little more serious. How did you turn that into a real company? So I, I got pretty lucky in that. So I, 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 the one other real time I've worked for someone else in life was, uh, doing an internship for the points guy. And through that, I got, you know, to know the community there and that they have a really big kind of travel hacking points optimizing community. And when I was doing this, uh, you know, I, when I said I needed to hire someone else, I just posted on their Facebook group and then someone messaged me or, you know, a few people messaged me and I just got really lucky in that my first hire, uh, Cameron, uh, was just an absolute rock star, uh, and, you know, is, is with us today as COO and just, you know, has the same kind of, I think, passion for travel that I do, uh, both on the getting the best deals as well as just personally traveling. Like, you know, he's, he's always on the move on the plane and, you know, that's, that's how I live my life for a few years as well. You mentioned earlier that with land, you really learn the value of working with people that you like working with and that you really can end up not liking a business, not because it doesn't work, but because the people you're working with just don't vibe with you. I think a lot of indie hackers, have yet to ever be managers or yet to find co-founders or hire anybody. Uh, and your experience going from you know land to easy point, uh, how can somebody more effectively find people to work with that they actually like? I think it's just really about having integrity with yourself and just drawing lines. And and for me, you know, this was kind of the culmination of advice from a lot of different people, but it, it boils down to like what I want to have them over at my house for a dinner party. And if the answer is no, they're they're not going to be part of the company. It's just that. Are they invited to the poker game? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, so funny enough, uh, the second hire, uh, Peter was like a good friend that I knew through, through poker and, uh, you know, didn't really have the background in travel, but you know, it's, it's like a similar type of, I think like analytical skills that are good for like finding the best deals on travel as well as that, like are good for poker. Uh, so then, you know, he started just diving into travel and, you know, he like Cameron has, you know, been here, uh, still here. And yeah, so I've also generally hired, and I don't recommend, I'd say, from what I've learned, like doing this, it just happened to work out well for me of like really hiring friends and like hiring friends of friends uh, as a way to make sure that just I always really enjoyed working with the people. So at this point, you're at a team of 10, I think you said. Yeah. What does everybody do? Like, how's the team set up? 
So there's actually been some some changes lately, and just in terms of you know how we're organizing things. So and it's always in flux as at a, at a startup responding to the the business needs. But uh, we have Cameron who is like our COO, and he manages kind of all the concierges as well as uh, starting our you know uh, first uh, dabbles into growth marketing. So we've never done any marketing to date. It's all been like our organic uh, referrals and people that I meet in person in terms of uh, how people discover the business. So we're starting to change that soon. But we've really taken the approach to date of just like improving our service offering and product and just trying to keep up with our customers versus like trying to grow new customers. And I know that's not exactly answering your question, but it it comes to just like how I've thought about hiring, which has generally been like, how can we just keep up with the growth as opposed to like, I need to go find more growth. And then the more you do the business, the more you find things that you wish can be improved. So, you know, I've always taken this approach of like, let's try to get the business to a place where I can feel really confident, really in high integrity and say that like, we're the best flight concierge service. And for basically anyone that flies business class, like we're the best solution for you. Just, you know, bar none. If you're part of a large enterprise and you have, you know, a large team and need things to be accounted for in a very specific way, we don't we don't have a, a product that's great for like larger enterprises now, but for any individuals or small teams, I could say that with confidence. And the more I do it, the more I realize things need to change. I realize, hey, you know, it's not good enough to just be available 20 hours a day and maybe not on Saturday. Like we really need to be available 24-7 if we're going to be booking people 24-7 because even if it's small, like we need to be able to be there for people. So the concierge team now uh, is five people. So you know, and and that's actually growing. We're looking to make another hire right now, finding someone that's based in Asia. And that allows us to basically always have like two people that can help out with both communicating with a client, fixing problems and finding tickets for them at any hour of the day. Uh, so we have, you know, five concierges, Cameron's kind of managing them. And then we have a bunch of like part-time uh, like business development slash like, uh, yeah, business development consultants of which like, each of them are kind of doing a little bit of a different thing. We have a, you know, full-time person working on business development. And yeah, that that's those that have only been going on for a few months. We've just we've been growing very fast this year. So it's almost like almost a new hire every month on average. And have you raised any money for for EasyPoint or is it all self-funded based on your revenues? Yeah, I, I have not raised any money. I've I've taken out a couple loans just for kind of growth and one for, kind of for growth, one for cash flow. Got a term sheet for venture debt about a month ago. Am uh, fundraising, doing an equity raise right now, but yeah, to date haven't done any fundraising. So let me dig into your mindset behind this a little bit because this business seems like it has product market fit. You're talking about not having to do a ton of marketing, but you're still growing the team just to keep up with demand. Yeah, uh, you've been through a bunch of different iterations where you've learned a lot and you've kind of incorporated those lessons into the latest version of the business. What are your overall goals for Easy Point Concierge, and how big do you think this can get? So I think our core like concierge business can easily be a, a business with an enterprise value of like hundreds of millions of dollars, but I don't think, I don't think billions, but I do think that the concierge service positions us well for other like, you know, tech products of which I've built prototypes before. So there's a few different areas, areas of business that I think we could potentially grow to. And for me, the optionality is really important where we have this business with product market fit. So that's going to be my focus. Most entrepreneurs make the mistake of not being focused enough on finding product market fit and, you know, lucky enough to find a business with that. I don't want to start investing a lot of emotional energy and capital into other things. We are at the point now where I feel very confident in our service and they're don't need to be that many more tweaks to improve it such that I'm doing a, a fundraise to start to build out, uh, you know, uh, there no longer need to be uh, 
that many more tweaks to our core concierge service, which is why I'm doing a fundraise to start expanding to uh, specifically one tech product, which will be helping consumers uh, decide whether to use their own miles or points or cash when booking. Uh, so imagine, you know, you have, you know, let's say you sign up for some frequent flyer programs. And if I don't get you to cancel your Cape Town ticket and book with us, you better sign up for a frequent flyer program and <laughs> okay, earn the we'll miles do. on your full fare ticket. So, you know, let's say after this trip, you know, you'll have like whatever, 30,000 miles on this airline. Maybe you'll have like 200,000 Chase Sapphire, Chase Sapphire points. And then next time you're booking, as opposed to trying to be the expert like me or, you know, have me that you can call. Imagine if there was something that uh, had kind of default preferences, but you can adjust those preferences. And then when you go online, let's say Google Flights or Expedia, it's connected to all of your points, all of your miles and recommends to you whether you should book with just a normal credit card or with miles or points. So the way this will start is we'll use this engine to automate a lot of what our concierge are currently doing manually and help that on our back end. And then once our back end is, you know, up to the place where our concierge basically don't have to do any searching themselves, then we'll start, you know, or in tandem, uh, but to start just working on the back end, but at some point in tandem, uh, working on the consumer facing aspect for this, which will probably start as a Chrome extension. And then I think eventually become kind of its own like booking engine inside. And I think that's a multi-billion dollar opportunity because there's a lot of miles and points out there. It's only growing uh, and there's no good way to, to know whether you should use them or not. How much of this ambition plays into your desire? As you said, you're fundraising and doing an equity round now. The other alternative is to basically stay independent, uh, be bootstrapped, grow off your own revenue. How much of your ambition is fueling your desire to raise and how much of it is just the unit economics of your business and running it as it currently is? It's really just the ambition. You know, I mean, we don't need money to continue growing our business uh, at a pretty fast rate for the core business. It's more that I would love to work with a world-class CTO and, you know, give this this other product a, a shot. Yeah. And the the plan is not to continue doing like many raises down the line. It's like, let's give myself, you know, nine months of runway to, you know, hire a tech team that doesn't put the core business at risk. Maybe continue to invest some of the or start to invest some of the core businesses profits into that area of business. But, you know, get an MVP for the back end within a few months, get an MVP for the front end in like max six months, see if there's product market fit. And if not, you know, scrap it. Uh, so that's kind of the, the plan there. Uh, and still, even if I, you know, do end up going down this line of business, my focus will always be our core business with product market fit, at least until we, you know, 20x that business because our customers love us. We have product market fit. So I really want to 10 or 20x the business, uh, of our, of our core business before really considering putting a lot more, uh, percentage of my, my team's time into an, into another product. Uh, but I think what's nice about the product I described is that it really works in tandem with our concierge service. It's like if, if we can automate a lot of our searching, that saves us a lot of time and will produce better results for our clients and that we'll never, you know, uh, manually miss things. So it's kind of an internal tool you would use as well as something that would be consumer facing? Yeah. It, so there's the internal tool would power the consumer facing tool is just like, what is the best deal with miles or points? Uh, that's the internal tool. The consumer facing tool combines that with then some type of business, business logic of, okay, here's how I value or here's how this consumer values their miles or points. Mm -hmm. And then is that greater or less than the cash value that you're reading on the page? Yeah. And then making it, you know, look nice and have good UX for that experience. So I mentioned at the beginning of this episode that. Easy Point has always been kind of a side project for you. Yeah. It's grown. It's got a lot of people working for it now, but you've also, throughout this entire story, always been working on other things on the side. 
And one of those has been a fund that you've been working on. So tell me about how that plays into the story, when you started it, why you started it, and how it affected your decisions with EasyPoint. Yeah, so I, I mentioned before that it was like my, my cousin Dan who got me to kind of dream bigger, think bigger, and then move to Jordan. He was the same person that I actually ended up starting this fund with. Uh, so I, I ended up uh, consulting for his uh, company, uh, Mosaic, in the fall of 2017 and spent a little bit of time here in the Bay Area. And while I was here, I was already uh, investing and spending a lot of time researching uh, Bitcoin and other crypto assets and went to a lot of meetups here and met people involved in the industry and was just really inspired uh, by what was going on and the types of things people are were, were building. And just, you know, then I started uh, co-investing with Dan and he was like, Doc, I think you're, you know, good at this and the way your mind works would be good for investing. And I never thought of that as something as like, you know, I would be doing like with my main energy or focus more just something like I enjoy doing and that maybe much later in life I'd consider doing it. But and yeah, so Dan and I were co-investing together. And, you know, after doing that for a bit, we really enjoyed that working relationship. I saw the types of investments that, you know, other funds and investors were making in the general sentiment. And I, I felt that there were, I think, a lot of clear mistakes being being made. I did some, you know, uh, analysis and consulting for two funds, uh, both of which have now blown up since and was pretty shocked at just like the way or they did due diligence or lack thereof. And, you know, after that, it gave me kind of the confidence to be like, listen, like I, I want to make good investments in this space. And I was open to kind of working for other people, but I just couldn't find a fund in which the thesis was enough I can get behind that I feel comfortable working for them. So decided to start my own fund with Dan. And, you know, now we've been up and running officially for uh, a year and three months now. And we're investing in the top entrepreneurs that are building on top of Bitcoin. And so when you start a fund, because some listeners might not be aware of exactly how it works, you're not really investing your own money. You're investing money from other people who basically contribute to your fund. Well, yeah, I think normally, especially in the VC world, that's the case. With us, uh, we knew that we needed to kind of build a track record before being able to to do that. Uh, so we started a fund at the beginning, which was exclusively kind of like the partners and advisors money right. with just a pretty small amount of outside capital. And, you know, we, we've raised more now and kind of continuing to do that fundraise. But uh, yeah, to start, it was, you know, primarily those that are making or involved in the decision making for, for our fund. This kind of seems like the perfect business for you because we've talked all this episode about you evaluating risk, you evaluating people, how you like really dealing with people and doing sales and how you can keep a cool head under a lot of financial pressure. And I think the stereotypical sort of line in Silicon Valley about how investors behave is not exactly being cool under financial pressure, people making a lot of decisions based on you know emotion and psychology and following the herd. What do you think are the unique things that you bring to running a fund and how do you sort of view yourself as being able to outcompete other investors? Yeah, I think the thing that that we've gotten down that is our biggest differentiator is just our thesis. Uh, the vast majority of funds uh, don't even try to really have a focused thesis, and the ones that do don't really execute on it. Uh, we're very specifically investing in the companies that are building on uh, the BSV version of Bitcoin, and the only kind of like liquid asset that we're um, holding is the either direct or derivative exposure to you know the BSV version of Bitcoin. 
so we're, you know, a fair, fairly narrowly focused and we think that we found, you know, the blockchain that basically everyone is going to be building on over the next many decades. And as a result, you know, I think that's by far our biggest edge more than anything else. So there's our thesis. I think there's the fact that everyone in the fund that's a partner has actually built businesses themselves and has entrepreneurial experience. Uh, while I think a lot of the the funds that have like notoriety or popularity in Silicon Valley, they have some you know, a, a good deal of entrepreneur experience themselves. By and large, still, most VCs don't really have much experience in actually like building businesses from zero to one, which I think is really important for like the support of entrepreneurs. And we like to be the first money in when we can. So, you know, being able to help at that kind of pre-seed and seed stage, if you don't, if you haven't been there, I think it's going to be really difficult. So I obviously don't interview very many investors on the Indie Hackers podcast. But I think it's pretty fascinating that you were both an investor and a founder because as an investor, you're trying to look at other founders and tell, you know, is this a person who's going to succeed? Is this a business who's going to succeed? But at the same time, you're doing the same thing yourself. You're a founder. Uh, So I wonder how much overlap there is on your thesis for what might make a business work and how you behave as a founder. Um, I've heard investors who, for example, are all about the team and they'll invest in any team if they think they're smart enough and talented enough and hardworking enough, regardless of the business idea. And there are some investors who care all about the market and they think, you know, it doesn't really matter how good your team is if you're in a fast, uh, promising and growing market that, you know, they'll put their money in because they believe in that. How would you say your sort of behavior as an investor matches up with your beliefs and behavior as a founder? Yeah, I mean, all of the, you know, Market's important, team's important. So I know some people are pretty radical. Some investors are radical in that they really just focus on one thing. Uh, but I think there's, it's largely overlap, but it's a little bit different. And one that like, as an entrepreneur, you're not optimizing for like the maximal market opportunity in EV. You're hopefully maximizing for what you love and happiness and just where that coincides. So like are miles and points, like the biggest market opportunity in the world right now? No. Is like investing in the blockchain that's going to be what you know, transforms our economy over the next few decades is? My answer is yes. Uh, so in, in that way, it doesn't overlap in that, you know, I think my fund uh, has much higher kind of risk-adjusted expected value than my uh, company does. But, you know, that also demonstrates in terms of where my, you know, time and focus is, which is in the fund and, you know, not not full-time with Easy Point. In terms of like team like so so market obviously is very important that our thesis is very narrow team is important too but like market has to be checked off where like if let's say we meet founders that we don't think are you know maybe of like the same very high caliber of the rest of our portfolio companies but they're building a business that we think is a great opportunity within a sub like market that we think is a great opportunity then we're going to invest so there, there's some overlap there, but it is very different kind of each side of the table where as an investor, you know, you're uh, thinking over a long time horizon, you're trying to maximize like your EV and minimize downside risk. Uh, whereas an entrepreneur, like you just want to like build your thing. I want to build my fund, but it's a, it's a different type of like build energy. I do think what is true for both is that the, the culture of, you know, everyone that I want to, uh, you know, that I work with is someone I really want to hang out with. And one of my business partners at the fund, one of the main partners, uh, he uh, and I started a business together in the past, 
did a podcast together and have been kind of the best of friends since college. And, you know, to me that, that is an edge. It's not a, that's not a downside. A, a lot of people don't like doing like, and you know, I started the phone with my cousin. So it's like, in terms of doing business with friends and family, it's like, I've done it. And, yeah. uh, there's certainly downsides to it, but I think the net is very positive. And when you do business with people that you really care about, uh, you conduct yourself, I think in a, in, in a better way. And it really strengthens the relationships, even if, it could be hard at times. And I, some people might do it with people and then they have a falling out. And I think fundamentally, like, you know, you're, you're not a, a different person when you do business, there's just more pressure. And if under pressure, you find that you, you know, you and that other person aren't a great fit. Well, it might not have come out as friends, but you're both still people and you conducted yourself and made your choices. And, you know, yeah, that's who you are. Yeah. I started, I didn't start Andy Hackers with my brother, but we worked together and you're right. It's great. When it works well, because for example, last night we, you know, we needed to have a meeting. We we're going to meet about a particular document we needed to put together. And we just talked for like four hours about our personal lives. And it's great. You know, I can't imagine a more fun way to work on something than to do with my brother. Yeah. And, and as some of that, my, my brother actually is doing some, uh, a little bit of business development, social media work for us for, for easy point. Cool. And, you know, it's, it's an opportunity to get to talk to him more. Yeah. So. You are running both this fund and EasyPoint at the same time. I think for most people, it's very difficult to start a business on the side of their job or even to run one full-time business all by itself. It's, it's uh, unimaginable, I think, to try to run two different businesses. They're very different kinds of businesses that require very different kinds of expertise and skills and knowledge. How do you do that effectively? Well, I'm very lucky in that for EasyPoint, uh, you know, I've talked a little bit about Cameron, but you know, the fact that Cameron is, you know, running the operations and the day to day allows, you know, my effort to easy point to really be kind of like strategic grand vision and then just sales that aren't like additional effort for me. It's more, I, I meet a lot of people in my world of investing now that are ideal clients for the fund. I mean that, uh, sorry, ideal clients for easy point. And that's how, you know, easy point I think has grown as virally as it has been where it's, you know, I'm, I'm meeting with a lot of potential companies and potential investors for the fund. And I'm not just another investor. I'm another investor who has like the best damn travel business and save them $3,000 in their last trip to Asia, you know? So it's, it's very synergistic. And I think, you know, that's also intentionally why I've, you know, didn't like shut down easy point when I wanted to start the fund and have this ambition of being, you know, a world-class investor. Uh, easy point, I think is, like really helped, you know, getting my name out there and getting the funds name out there. And then, you know, vice versa, meeting people just in trying to, you know, grow my fund and make good investments have, I've met people that have been good clients for easy point. So my, you know, the majority of my, like my time and my focus is on the fund, but when I, it's on easy point, it's like, you know, kind of higher level strategic thinking. And because I'm not as involved in the day to day, I think it actually kind of gives me a little bit of an edge in terms of making those decisions where so many entrepreneurs, because they're so involved in the day to day minutia, uh, it's really easy to like not kind of think bigger where, you know, the, the way that I've set these up, I think like easy point has actually been as successful as it has been because it's been a side hustle. And I, I think a lot of people are like, Oh, wait, you're saying if you were full time, it'd be less successful. Well, maybe at this point now, like I could grow the business faster if I was full time, mm-hmm. but I, I wouldn't have gotten to this point of finding product market fit if I didn't just you know, follow what my customers really wanted on the side. If I was trying to like build this specific type of business, I probably would have toiled with my productized consulting for two years or yeah. something versus finding it organically. So, uh, I think they work very synergistically. You know, it's almost like, you know, I, I play music, I play poker. Like those are things that are like 
skills that I've like developed that I continue to enjoy developing. And I find, and I'm not doing either of those like a ton, but the more I do those, the the better clarity of thinking I have when I'm working at the fund. And I think easy points like that as well, where it's like, it's nice to have a, a way to do strategic thinking. That's something that's your baby. That's maybe not your main venture to just keep those wheels turning and also to really empathize with entrepreneurs as well. So, you know, a lot of P- VCs, like they, they think back to when they were being an entrepreneur, but maybe they haven't been one for 20 years now, where for me, like I'm, I still run a business, you know? So I, I find a lot of times that, you know, maybe like my first reaction of thinking how to say something isn't the best. And I think, okay, how would I, how would I feel if I was, you know, the easy point founder getting this? And then I, you know, reflect and, and write that. And I, I think, you know, it's, yeah, just, it's been a very syner- synergistic uh, thing. Yeah. It's so cool to hear how they both work together. Cause I think it'd be very difficult to do it if they didn't. And it makes perfect sense that you're able to recognize that they did and, and decide to keep doing both of them at the same time. Yeah. And I would, you know, encourage more people to like, you don't want to have like multiple big things that just like eat away at your time. But I think having passions that take up like, you know, some set amount of hours that you're, you're disciplined about, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like, I, I really have like, you know, just like one day a week where it's like a few hours on easy point. And then the rest is just like, you know, helping and supporting here and there. But like, so it's important to have that discipline, but if you're able to have that discipline, like having multiple passions, I think it's very synergistic. And a lot of my like heroes are not people that like worked in one industry and one career and didn't have other things. It's people that were able to develop skills and, you know, develop ventures or even, you know, become artists and, and did those all, uh, overlapping. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've been, playing a lot of chess recently and taking chess lessons and I've yet to figure out a way to make it work with indie hackers in any way, but I will keep my eye out. Yeah. Zach, this podcast is listened to by a great many early stage founders who would love to start a business or we've already started one, but are struggling to figure things out. Uh, what's your advice given all your experiences uh, for someone in that position? What can they learn from what you've learned? Product founder fit really like just make sure you're loving what you're doing or you're going to love what you're doing real soon. (laughs) And I think have really regular reflection. It's hard. You know, the last week, frankly, I haven't been like that great about it, but every day when I like, you know, kind of end the work day or at least end any like my larger tasks that I have to do, I think, okay, like how did today go well? How did it go poorly? How can I do better tomorrow? How do I make my schedule tomorrow? Uh, allow myself to have the success that I want to have and the happiness that I want to have. And then, you know, even, you know, a more like weekly or every couple of weeks, deeper reflection of like, am I really happy doing this? Like, what, what do I love and what do I not like? And how can I cut the stuff I don't like out? And, you know, this is almost therapeutic to say it out loud because of what I know I need to do. I've, you know, been pretty good about doing it, but I could always do better. And, you know, I'll, I'll do a better reflection today as a result of you asking the question. Glad to help. Yeah. Founder product fit. Zach Resnick, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Can you tell listeners where they can go to learn more about EasyPoint and your fund? Yeah, so we'll put this all in the show notes. Uh, but our, our website for EasyPoint is easypoint.me, easypoint.me. Uh, if you want to learn more about our points optimization plans, it's easypoint.me slash consulting. And if you want to learn more about uh, our fund, it's Unbounded Capital and it's unboundedcapital.com. And for anyone interested in the points optimization plans, $500 off in the first week, $250 after that. And for flights, $200 off in the first week, $100 after that. Yeah. Thank you for having me on, Cortland. Thanks so much, Zach. Listeners, if you enjoyed hearing from Zach, I would love it if you reached out to him on Twitter and let him know. 
He is at Trumpet is Awesome with no E at the end. So if you learned anything or you appreciated hearing his story, take a second and say thanks. I also love it when you reach out. You can find me at ndhackers.com, which is a community of many thousands of founders and developers who are helping each other get started building profitable online businesses. So if you're working on something new or just thinking about getting started, I encourage you to make a post there and tag me so I can respond. I'm at CS Allen. And again, that's ndhackers.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I will see you next episode.